Welcome listeners to episode 130 of the Ad Nauseum podcast. My name is Dr. David C. Noe. I'm here in the vomitorium with Jeff T. Winkle. Jeff, we got to get right to it, don't we? We do. Yep. So tonight we are talking about uh, Aeschylus. This is our first foray into tragedy on the podcast. Other than the Alcestis. That's right. Exactly. But that's that only going to half count. Yeah. Tragic comedy. And so we're going to open with a distinguished translator. Yes. Uh, one Deborah Roberts. Who, uh, whose translation of the Prometheus Bible we'll be using for these episodes. And she is reading from a selection of her own translation. Mm-hmm. And let's just cue it up for the listeners. Um, it's when Prometheus is speaking to whom? Uh, the Daughters of Ocean, which make up the chorus in this play. Roll the clip. Don't think it's delicacy or stubbornness that keeps me quiet. My knowledge eats my heart as I see myself mistreated in this way. And yet who else but me distributed in full their privileges to these new gods? No need to speak of that. You know the story. But listen to the miseries of mortals, childish until I made them intelligent and capable of thought. I tell you this not to cast any blame on human beings, but to show the kind intent in what I gave. At first, they saw, but seeing was no use. They heard, but didn't hear. Like shapes in dreams... They passed long lives in purposeless confusion. They knew no homes of sun-warmed brick or wood, but lived like swarming ants in lightless caves beneath the ground. They had no way of telling when winter would arrive, or flowery spring, or summer with its fruits. In everything, they acted without thought, till I explained the risings and the settings of the stars, so hard to read. And I did more for them I invented number, cleverest of devices, and writing, hard at work to help recall all things to memory, the muse's mother. I was the first to yoke wild animals as slaves of pack and collar, so they might take on the weightiest of mortals' burdens. I harnessed horses to the chariot, delight of the extravagantly rich. No one else but me invented sailing ships that roamed the sea with linen wings outspread. I found all these contrivances for mortals, but to my sorrow, I have no device by which to escape my present misery. I have no device by which to escape my present misery. Yes, heavy lines. Nice. Yeah, and and from a character who uh, not only is suffering greatly, but can has seen it all coming and sees what is to come as That's well. That's right. Yeah. Now the listeners they want to hear that fabulous intro music. Let's let's give it to them. Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. All right, Jeff, so here we are. Are we going to dispense with the obligatory, how you feeling? Is it smarchy? I'm not smarchy. Did you exercise and all that stuff? So, let's let's get past it. Okay. Though. I was, I was going to actually complain about the weather today. Were you? Yes. It's, it's, I Why? Mean, I'm, I'm ready for some cool fall weather, and it was it was, it was was too hot for me. I was Smocktober? I, yes. I was I was grumbling to my wife and kids uh, about it today. And said, but I shouldn't, I mean, when it's sunny out, what, I mean, what do you got to grumble eggs, about? I, nothing. Okay. Right? So, um. Let's just, uh, let's let's not talk about it. Yeah, so right. tonight we have a shout out. We do. Yes, and this goes to one Victoria Swift. Now, this young woman contacted me uh, a couple weeks ago and said that she liked the episode on loading the cannons, classical rhetoric, and uh, wanted to investigate the subject further. Mm-hmm. So I provided her with some materials, and then she gave us this fabulous shout out. Jeff, can you read some of this for us, please? Yes, so Victoria is at, at the University of Wisconsin. And she writes that after doing 12 years in the army, I finally just finally decided to follow my passions and pursue a degree in classics. I chose the major after some hesitation because people would always ask me if it would be useful in the real world. Wow, I never got those questions. <laughs> Boy, that, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a classics degree and would you like some fries with that? Yeah, exactly. Heard them all. I actually started my college career, she continues, in a sociology program thinking it would be more useful, but I switched a few years in. Go, Victoria. Yes, excellent. Well, well done. Before starting college, I was teaching myself Latin and ancient Greek and reading any classical philosophy book I could find. 
I figured I could just keep it a passion project while I did college, but I found myself in my Latin books instead of doing homework for my program too often. You want to pick it up there? Yes. Isn't this great? This is awesome. (laughs) I love it. Victoria says, I realized then how much I loved it because I never grew tired of studying anything classical and I always wanted more. Now that I've studied classics, I can't think of any degree that would be more useful to me and I'm happy I made the switch. Over time, the field has only proven its versatility. I'm currently working on a research project for the Writing Center about how classical rhetoric can make us better tutors and aid modern writing instruction. Passions are put in us for a reason, and it is never too late to embrace them. Oh, that's awesome. Spoken like a philosopher, huh? Definitely. I like that. Well, I love the, uh, 12 years in the Army. Yes. And comes out of that to pursue a degree in classics. That's fantastic. fantastic. And I also have to add, her name, Victoria Swift. Yes. It sounds like the alter ego of a superhero. Uh, you know, it? I had the exact same thought. <laughs> what a great name. Yeah, it is incredible, <laughs> Victoria Swift. It's fantastic. Yep. I would hire her for some classics position if I had the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Yep. So thank you so much uh, for listening, Victoria. We hope that... Uh, uh, you're getting some value for your time, and uh, congratulations on some wonderful career choices. Yeah, indeed, we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, do we have a we have a, a correction to make? Uh, from we last do week? a quarter oh. again. Doom okay. what pains happened? me. What happened? It pains me to be sloppy. You know, <laughs> slop, slop, slop. <laughs> last week uh, we were talking about the character uh, Agenor or Agenor. Yeah, and I think that I said when we were discussing Cadmus that Agenor was Cadmus's brother. Mm. Wrong. That's, that's not right. Wrong. Mishka, yeah. can you put in some kind of a sad? sound here a sound effect <laughs> right third third strike on family feud right right yeah right. so here's the uh, the official wikipedia entry which i should have been wise enough to read beforehand but no agenor was born in memphis of egypt to poseidon in libya and he had a twin brother named belus the latter remained in egypt and reigned over there while agenor departed to phoenicia and reigned there so as it turns out agenor's children were europa cadmus kilix phoenix phineas thassus Ceros, kepheus donner dancer <laughs> vixen blitzen prancer <laughs> agenor's wife was variously given as telephasa Argiope, Antiope, and Tyro. All right. With the latter giving her name to the city of Tyre. All right. So, okay. So, Agenor, I was close. You're very close. I said it was his brother. It was his dad. It was his dad. Right. Yeah. So. so, sorry about that, audience. Pay careful attention. Listen carefully. We make slips. Right. Well, you know, we could have easily let that slide, but your conscience was bothering you. It was. Right? You, you don't like to let those things just slide. So, I, I, I admire that you. I appreciate that, that, that Jeff. Correction. Yes. <clears throat> I have to weigh your temporary admiration against thousands of errors. <laughs> Uh, I'll take it. We have an opening quote. Yes. A couple of them, actually. All right. Shall I start with the first one? Yes. And I have a, I have a, the first one is from Hugh Lloyd-Jones. Yes. I have a Hugh Lloyd-Jones story. You have a Hugh Lloyd-Jones anecdote? I do, right? It's very, very brief. But, um, you know, so a a British scholar. Let's do that first. uh, A giant in the field, right? Yes, he's incredible. Incredible. But um, my one encounter with uh, Mr. Lloyd-Jones. You met him in person? Well, I, 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 I passed him. At one of the big, uh, what was it? What was it? The APA conference. Yes, I think the American Philological Association. They call it, it's the SCS now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was walking by, and he, I mean, it was the, it was like almost out of central casting, in that he was disheveled, and he was, he didn't really look like he knew where he was going. But my favorite detail is that his name tag on his lanyard was upside down. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, isn't that great? <clears throat> yeah. But um, this is not to besmirch his. His, uh, his academic prowess. Oh, no. The guy was brilliant. He was. Yep. And I really enjoyed this book. If you if you want to have a hardcore, serious uh, look at some of the theological, philosophical issues um, behind Greco-Roman myth and tragedy, this was a, a fine read. So it's from the book called The Justice of Zeus. Mm-hmm. I like those kinds of titles, which are highly descriptive and brief. Yeah, that's it. I don't, be- I don't believe there is... Um, even a subtitle to this, a semicolon. I don't think That's so. That's it, really? Yeah. Okay. The Justice of Zeus. So he says, quote, this is page 164. The early Greeks were capable of their unique achievements largely because they could bear, as their religion shows, very much more reality than most human beings. Hmm. What do you think of that, Jeff? Well, I mean, what I, I, I see in that, um, to relate it to the play we're going to right. start discussing is, one of the things I find remarkable is... Um, the willingness of the Greeks to push back against their gods mm. and, you know, and to question. So in this play, questioning Zeus, you know, the, the daughters of ocean come out very early and are complaining about Zeus. Right. And if you were to compare that to other, um, 
ancient cultures, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, imagining a text where they are kind of complaining about Marduk mm-hmm. and besmirching his character. I can't imagine it. Mm. And so here, the, the, that willingness to kind of to deal with um, what, he, what he writes, you know, very much more reality than most human beings is recognizing that this is our God of justice, but so much around us seems so unjust. How right. do we square that circle? Right. Yeah. Do you think the book of Job is an approximation or not really? Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Right. I, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, I wouldn't lump that in with the, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but the book of Job is very much right. kind of you know, shaking your, shaking your fist. At least for the first 37 chapters or so. Right. <laughs> then things change. Right. But what I've thought about this quote a lot since I first encountered it approximately a decade ago when I read this book. Mm-hmm. Um, they could bear very much more reality than most human beings as their religion shows. I think this was really striking for the reasons that you said, but I would just like to restate some of them. Yeah. They had this capacity to hold in their minds two uh, apparently highly contradictory ideas or impulses. And and they were bothered by it, but they weren't lazy. They didn't opt out in right. some ways and say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. They kept continually exploring the misery of human life yeah. and the supposed goodness uh, of the gods that they worshipped. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's a remarkable aspect of um, Greek society. Yeah. And it's it's there's nothing similar among the Romans. They're no. just so practical. Right, right, right. Um, you know, I raise that question in, in a number of classes that I teach is that, you know, why, why were the Greeks able to do, why, you know, why would this, this small, rocky, mountainous country? Right. Uh, why were tiny they, in population. Tiny in population. Why were they able to do things that the other cultures around them, um, uh, uh, contemporaneous, before them, after them, right. simply could not? And, and I think this is one answer to that yes. question. Yes. And why in that specific 50-year period of the 5th century, you know, the end of the Greco-Persian War, so 479 until the plague, yep. 430, 429, that 50-year period, the Pentecontidea, the flowering of Western culture, it's, it's remarkable. It is. One answer people give, not to get too far afield here, is that it's all propaganda, hmm. right? In other words, it really wasn't that great. We've just been told it's great for so long. Hmm. Okay, you can kind of think that until you see the Parthenon. Exactly. And <laughs> or until you see the the disc thrower by um Myron or the, you know, the the spear bearer by Polycletus or something right. like that and then you're you're just struck this is incredibly beautiful. Right. And even when you, when you, you know, walk through Athens uh, today, you know, you were ju- you were just there a few right. weeks ago, uh you know, the 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 percentage of remains that are there that date from that period mm-hmm. is extraordinary, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, and then the I think the other you know pushback against that idea of it being propaganda is, well, look at the results, mm-hmm. look at kind of the ripple effect, you know, from then till now. Well, the amount of imitation, uh, if, of course, right? Yes. Yeah. Or, or, but even in terms of um, you know, drama, historiography, yep. philosophy, it all stems from that period. Now, it might, it maybe. There were some kind of maybe more rosy pictures being painted of it right. uh, afterwards, but you can't argue with the results. That's right. Yeah. So in preparation for this episode, I was reading Dr. Roberts' uh, introduction to the play. Yeah. Very nicely done, by the way. And she includes a portion of the, the Nachleben of Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very artfully written, very nicely written, and just mentions a few of the ways in which the Prometheus story has been told and retold yeah. endlessly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it's a good example of what you were just saying. Yeah. You, you can't argue with the results. Right. So, Jeff, can you give us a, a little bit of a summary um, of the person of Aeschylus? Uh, we've got a little quote here from one H.J. Rose. Yes. Uh, do you want, me to, you want me to read this? Or, or, yes. Okay. I mean, at your, at your sure. pleasure, how much you want. So this is from H.J. Rose's A Handbook of, of Greek Literature, a book that I had on my grad school shelf. Yes. Yep. 1934. It's in the public domain now. Yes. Um, Rose writes, Aeschylus, or more properly, Aeschylus, son of Ephorion, of good family resident in Eleusis, was born in or about the year 525 BC. In accordance with the usual ancient habit, though by no means confined to antiquity, of decorating the lives of poets with miracles, it is said that Dionysus in person appeared to him while still a boy and bade him write tragedies. It is said that he was a Pythagorean, which is probably due to the latter tendency, later tendency to connect Pythagoras somehow with every philosopher or theologian. Did we cover an episode on Pythagoras? Did we? I, yeah, you're not remembering. I, it's, it's, I mean, no meat for us, thanks. Oh, we're Pythagoreans. Yes, we did talk about the Pythagoreans. All right. right, right. <laughs> we're trying to plug an episode. <laughs> yeah, stay with me here. I'm sorry. 
That he was an initiate of the Eleusinian Mysteries has been repeatedly asserted, and whether we believe it or not depends on our interpretation of an ambiguous remark of Aristotle. The known facts of his career are that he fought very bravely at Marathon, and 10 years later at the chief battles of Athens and her allies against Xerxes, which is extraordinary. Yes, and you know that the only thing that is on his tombstone, we covered this as well yeah. in, the, in the story of unusual deaths. Yeah. Uh, here, you know, here lies uh, Aeschylus, who defeated the long-haired um, Persians at, at Marathon. Marathon. Nothing about his Nothing tragic about his, career. Yeah. Right. That he exhibited tragedies for the first time in the 70th, 70th Olympiad, uh, roughly 499 to 496 BC. Before Marathon, by the way. Yes. Um, and won his first prize in 484, thereafter being for some time the most popular poet in Athens. You want to, you want to pick, sure. it, pick it up there? Yeah. He accepted an invitation from Hieron to go to Syracuse, of course, in Sicily, sometime between 472 and 468, that he returned to Athens and left the city again after 458. Let's see, in 458, he would have been 67 years old, never to return. That he died near Gela in Sicily in 456 or 455. Remember how he died? We, the, the turtle hit him in the head. Yes, an eagle dropped a turtle on his bald head, <laughs> right. and that killed him. That's right, right, yeah. No, that's probably just uh, new comedy jokes. Right, probably not true, but no, it's a great story. It's, I would be happy to go that way. You know, you hear kind of a whistling sound, and all of a sudden, exactly. turtle. Yeah, exactly. A good death is one you don't see coming. That's correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> we also know that he won first prize 13 times in all. Why he died in a sort of voluntary exile is not known, turtle. <laughs> Certainly it was not for want of appreciation in Athens, for his last victory was shortly before his departure. But political events may have had something to do with it, since his plays show no love for extreme democracy and considerable admiration for the older Athenian constitutional forms. Hmm. Or it may have been some private reason of which we know nothing, Turtle. More important than the events of his life are his plays. Of these he wrote about 90 that's incredible. And how many survived, Just Jeff? seven. Isn't that incredible? That's right, a similar sad stat with uh, Sophocles. I think like, it's like 120 plays, seven survived. Unbelievable. Euripides a little bit better, the 18 or 19. But it's just a small sliver of the massive output yeah. of these guys. So yeah. what's what's your favorite sitcom? My favorite sitcom of all time? Yeah. Seinfeld. Okay. Yeah. Could you boil it down to seven episodes? Man, no. No way. No. No, you couldn't do that. Because it's all an interconnected whole, right? Right. right. So are you saying that, uh, is, it even, is it kind of pointless to even kind of interpret these tragedies because we have so little of them? Uh, no, I'm saying that we have to recognize our interpretation is inherently very limited. Yes, yes. agreed, agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Dave, um, before we get to the play, I think it would be useful to um, our audience to maybe talk a little bit about just tragedy as um, a, a, an Athenian cultural thing, right. and maybe a bit about you know the three great tragedians whose works survive intact: Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think we should do an episode or two on the origins of tragedy. Yes, um, dithyram and so on and so forth. Exactly right. So, but um, so tragedy is, is one of the the many uh, great gifts that the ancient uh, Greeks, the Athenians, uh, bequeathed to us in the, yes. in the world. Seem, seems to have begun in the middle of the sixth century, right? Around 530, 520, something like that. Right, and associated with uh, one Thespis. That's correct. And so the the story, which you know, maybe as best we can say, maybe quasi historical, right. Um, is that he was leading one of these dithyrambic choruses in, in honor of the god Dionysus, who is the god of, of drama. And we should we should um, specify or stipulate what a dithyram is, right? Right. So a dithyram is a is a particular genre of of sacred sung mm-hmm. uh, poetry. Okay. That that uh, in its original form, we think it was like a, a choral ode. Mm-hmm. And the the um, the innovation that's associated with Thespis is that um, at one particular performance that traditionally is 534 BC, okay. he steps out of the chorus and then it becomes a, a call and response. So he basically says, I'm done with the Supremes. Yeah. I'm Diana Ross. Yeah, Diana, t- I'm going on my own. He went totally Diana Ross on him. That's it's, right. That's uh, exactly right. That's the birth of drama. <laughs> it is. <laughs> or Michael said, I've had enough of the other four Jacksons. Actually, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Exactly. Who could argue with the the, uh, the success, right? Yeah, yeah of right, course. Right. So, so it, now you have the possibility of... Dialogue. Dialogue. And so Thespis then becomes the first actor. And so he's singing an individual part and he's going back and forth between a choral ode and an individual song. So voila, you have drama. And it's Aeschylus, uh, not that long after. He's born in 525. So it's, you know, a generation after that uh, ish. How about Umama, you have drama? 
instead of voila. That doesn't really work. Ooh, mama. You've, you've got drama. You've got drama? All yeah. right. Okay, I like it. I'll, All right. We'll run with it. I wasn't really listening. Sorry. <laughs> I was saying that um, Aeschylus is born in 525, right? So it's yep. not that long after this event, whatever it was. Right. And he is usually credited with adding a second actor to the form. Was he spinning 45s that he picked up from um, Thespis and the and the... The choristers in the in the DJ booth. I mean, was, is that he's kind of listening? Hey, I can do this. Uh, yeah, oh, totally. Right. Exactly. Right. It's like he. It's like you know all those mus- musicians who saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. It's right. Like, hey, look at these. I can play a guitar poorly. Come on. I got a bad haircut. <laughs> exactly. Come on. Right. Uh, look at me. And and then it's um, and Sophocles in the generation after that is you got of, Phrenicus in there too. Phrenic, uh, is that a favorite of yours? No, Phrenicus? but you've got him in there. <laughs> so okay, Phrenicus is in there somewhere. Put him in there. But Sophocles is credited. He adds the third actor, and yeah. that's kind of where the the, um, the the form stops. Well, until Euripides wrecked it all. And, until he explodes everything. That's right? correct. But by and large, the history of tragedy, it's a very conservative art form. It seems mm-hmm. that the audience is kind of expected to kind of unfold in a particular way, look and sound a particular way. And, and, and yeah, until Euripides comes and kind of turns it on its head. And they were fine, uh, you know, who, uh, booing and hollering and throwing things. Yeah. If the tragedy went in a direction they didn't like, exactly, they didn't right. expect, right? Which some have suggested that explains why Euripides comparatively won so uh, fewer um, first prizes, right? Yeah. So the traditional breakdown is that Aeschylus is the traditionalist, mm-hmm. right? He is um, the devout monotheist. There's one telling, yeah, uh, who sees you know mystery in the ways of the gods and you know tries to plumb the philosophical and theological depths, right? And then what's the Traditional understanding, perhaps a caricature of Sophocles. Sophocles is the existentialist. Um, okay. The vast majority of his plays that survive, maybe all of them, are post-plague, and so some have thought that that kind of that that pulls the rug out uh, from you know Athenian self-confidence. Mm. Um, and so he's really it's a little too neat of an interpretation. Well, all of these are okay. All of these are, but so, so you know you have you know in Aeschylus you'll have plays where the gods are right there. Right. You know um, you have Apollo and Athena coming down on the on the uh, Acropolis or mm-hmm. on the Areopagus in the third play of the Oresteia trilogy. Yes, exactly. And in Sophocles, the gods speak secondhand. They're mm-hmm. re- they're removed. So someone suggested that they're they're texting. They're yeah. They're they're if you like the beginning of. So Oedipus the King, yes, which was staged in 429, the year after the plague, mm. uh, it begins with a problem in Thebes. And what's the problem in Thebes? It's a plague. Yeah. And so they're wondering, you know, where are the gods? And the gods have to speak through prophets and through oracles. They don't They don't come out like maybe Aeschylus would have a theme yeah. come down. So, so, so much of this is shaped by Aristotle. And I don't right. remember, I don't remember which scholar it was who said, it may have been Peter Green. I don't remember. Aristotle is the best biologist to ever write about literature. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 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 But, you know, he said of Oedipus Rex, the best, uh, the best poem, the best play by the best tragedian. Right. And that's kind of stuck. It has. Right. It's, it's, uh, if, if, if so, if you meet someone who has never read any Greek tragedy, but they know a little bit about, about it, right. they probably know at the title Oedipus Rex. Yep. Right? Oh, you're reading about sleeping with your mom and, you know, killing your dad. Exactly. Well, yes, but there's a lot more to it exactly. than that. Exactly. Right, right. That's not the whole story. Correct. Right. And then uh, Euripides? Yeah, Thomas uh, tagged as the atheist. Okay. Um, but more in a sense that he's the one who kind of, what was it we were just talking about, kind of um, throws a hand grenade into the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Which explodes. It's, I think that, that term often comes with a play like the Bacchae. So is there, is there a, we've been talking a little bit about 50s and 60s music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there an analog here to Euripides? Who, who throws a bomb into the whole thing? Well, I, could, I think, grenade? I guess that would, be, I would, to go back to the Beatles, and the Beatles and the Stones kind of do that. Okay. You know, they, they, it's, they kind of, um, it's after them, you stop hearing doo-wop. Yes. Right? <laughs> you know? And, you don't like doo-wop? I, oh, I'm fine with doo-wop, but. To do run Run, run, run. Oh, Sean Cassidy. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, well, Much before that. Well, I know that, but that's the that's the uh, All right. the the more famous one. Yeah. Um, and so Euripides, he, right? We we kind of are are jaded as well in our understanding of him, or our expectations have been shaded by Aristophanes. Yes. To go back to Brekekex Coax Coax. Right. So much of what we think of these guys influenced by Aristophanes, you know, fantastic parody in The Frogs. Exactly. The, the, almost the full uh, last quarter of that play is the throwdown between Euripides and, and Aeschylus, mm-hmm. right? Le, Le Kuthianapolisen, 
he lost his little bottle of oil. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that, you know, and, you know, a bit unfairly, it shapes our, our view of these right. personalities because they're exaggerated comic persona. But there's uh, there's a kernel of truth. And that's buried correct. in there somewhere. Right. Yep, yep. Right. So context, you might say, is crucial. Right. For understanding the original import of the play. Right. So let me ask you this. What is Aeschylus trying to say to the Athenian people? Or um, what is he saying to the Athenian people that they're trying to understand? Yeah, it's... Well, it, this is a really tricky question because one of the mysteries about this play is when it was written, right? As and well as did he really write did it? Did he really write it? There is a. There we're not going to get into that. No, we're not. But but um, I mean, at least to say there is a thread of scholarship that suggests that uh, maybe the play dates from the the, the last um, part of the fifth century, in which case mm-hmm. he couldn't have, have written it. Right. Um, a theory that his son wrote it. Yeah. Right. 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 So I guess at the end of the day, we don't really know. But um, Aeschylean authorship was ascribed in antiquity. Yes. And that stays fairly consistent, really up to the present day. Yeah. But P- Professor Roberts, again, handles this question very nicely in her introduction. Um, uh, why don't you share that with us, Dave? Sure. So this is from uh, page 20. She says, What features of the play have raised doubts? As I noted above, some find the play's treatment of Zeus inconsistent with that of Aeschylus's other plays. Hmm. The poetry, although it has a good deal of the grandeur of Aeschylus, is linguistically less complex. The choruses in particular are simpler and less densely metaphorical than in most of his other dramas. Vocabulary, syntax, and meter are in several respects uncharacteristic of what we find in other Aeschylean plays, and various elements in the play seem to point to a later date than is compatible with what we know of the playwright's life and career. This is what you were saying. Yeah. The staging seems unusually elaborate and demanding. Maybe CGI had just been invented? I don't know. But then this is the part I like. It is impossible, given our current state of knowledge, to be certain about the play's authorship. The fact that we have only a fairly small percentage of Aeschylus's work means that we have to be cautious about generalizations. And the fact that the play was clearly viewed as Aeschylean in antiquity should continue to give us pause. Hmm. Something you referenced also. One suggestion that might account both for the play's oddities and for its ancient reputation as Aeschylus's work is that Aeschylus's son, Euphorion, produced a Prometheus trilogy as the work of his father, perhaps completing an unfinished text. Ah, okay. But in the absence of certainty, she says, I continue to speak of Aeschylus as the author, not only because this seems to have been unquestioned in antiquity, but also because for all the differences scholars have noted, the play seems Aeschylean in its grandeur and scope and in its central thematic preoccupations. Okay. That's a very judicious and yeah. reasonable conclusion. Yes. I like that. I, I, let's, let's, um, I'm all for following Professor Roberts' lead in this, in, in this sense. Yeah. So um, a couple of things I, that I would just uh, like to, to talk about as, as setup. And so um, apparently the the um, chronological range given for this play is written sometime between 479 and 424. Okay, and, that's uh, broad. That's very broad. 55 um, years. But you know, if it's if you take that earliest date, 479, it's the same year as the Battle of Thermopylae, mm-hmm. right in the right in the middle of the of the second uh, wave of Persian Wars. Right. And uh, one of the the this, the views of the ancient theater that I really like is when I teach this to my classes, I, I try to emphasize is. I think for an ancient Athenian audience, they wouldn't have seen a massive difference between what happened in the theater and what was happening on the Pnyx. Right. And so kind of the, the debates in the theater for democracy. Can you explain the Pnyx a little bit so the, for the Pnyple? Yeah, the, for the Pnyx. The Pnyx is, is, is a hill that's kind of in the in the area of the Acropolis and the Agora. It's all kind of right in, near the downtown. It's a little bit to the southwest, I believe, yes. of the Agora. So if you're standing on the Pnyx, you can see the Areopagus, and then beyond that, the, the Acropolis. And Pnyx is a Greek word that means something like... Um, crowded, right? Or, yeah. Or, or thick. Shoved together. Shoved together. And that's where the Athenian democracy would meet, and they would they would debate, and they would vote. And um, and so I, I like to tell my students is that I think that in the ancient Greek mind of the 5th century, kind of the theater of democracy in the Pnyx, where you're debating about issues for the, that had to do with the state. Life and death, like, war and peace. Right. It's not all that different than what's happening in the theater of Dionysus just a few hundred yards away. Where That's an excellent point. They're still doing the, the same kind of thing. And so I think to fully understand um, any Greek tragedy... You don't need this element. No. But if you can pinpoint a date, you can say, okay, what was going on? And, um, you know, it, when when Aeschylus is painting Zeus as this tyrant right. in this play, 
is he making Zeus a stand-in for Pericles? For, for, could it be? Could it be Pericles? Could it be the Persians? Could it be Themistocles? It, it, could it be that? Um, I think that you know when when Lloyd, where sorry, H.J. Uh, Rose says that Aeschylus um, shows no love for extreme extreme democracy. Yeah, I'd buy that, but I think he's also very sympathetic to the idea that um, this this de- democratic experiment is also something that is blessed by the gods. Right. I think like that we were talking about, we, were, we briefly mentioned the third play in the Oresteia, the idea that, that Athena comes down and kind of works with Athenian institutions to come to a, a, a resolution mm-hmm. seems to suggest to me that, okay, Aeschylus is saying, okay, the gods are on the side of this thing, mm-hmm. right? Maybe Pericles, Pericles represents kind of an extreme view that Aeschylus wouldn't have, wouldn't have a, a lot of, um, of love for. Right. But, um, if this play is indeed from the earlier part of the 5th century BC, there is a number of candidates for who the Zeus is the stand-in for. That's well said. Yeah. So was this uh, likely part of a trilogy? Yes, that's what that's the um, the widely accepted view. That okay. th- this is the first play, which was followed by Prometheus uh, Leomenos, Prometheus Unbound, right, and then wrapped up with Prometheus Pyrphoros, the, the Prometheus the Firebearer. Was there a, f- a fourth play like Prometheus on the Lamb? <laughs> Prometheus at the post office. Prometheus donates a lung. That's I, right. <laughs> oh man! Prometheus goes to camp. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, pretty man. much endless. It is endless. Are there any uh, fragments of these plays? I think there are. There's a, there's a few. Okay. That, so I don't. They're, they're not. It, this isn't, isn't just um, you know, so pure fantasy. No. These plays did exist. Well, Prometheus yeah. goes to camp. That, <laughs> That's pure fantasy. It is. Starring that uh, Michigan native, right? What who's that? Ernest? Ernest. Was he from Michigan? I don't know. Uh, Jim Varney was. There you name. go. Yeah. He used to do the ice cream commercials. Right. Right, right. And uh, he was the Nordamine Vern guy, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> that got old quickly. <laughs> right. But I mean if if Prometheus was a you know a mi- a moderately successful Netflix uh series, yeah. they would keep they, they would, would. They, they would make Prometheus goes to camp. Right. Of course they would. Prometheus goes to college. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's pretty much endless. Yep. So the source, mm-hmm. mythologically, for Aeschylus is Hesiod. That's, that the seems... The primary to... source, or maybe the only source. Right. And so, you know, so Hesiod deals with Prometheus in both um, his works and days and the Theogony, mm-hmm. but it's very skeletal, right? We don't get a, a, a lot of detail surrounding uh, uh, Prometheus's motivations, right? We learn that he steals fire and he gets right. human beings. Aeschylus is very interested in why he might have done these things. Slightly different genealogy given um, in Hesiod yes. than for um, Aeschylus. Yeah, so Hesiod mentions that Prometheus is the son of Iapetus. Right. Uh, no mother is, is, is given. And um, at least two times early in the play, Aeschylus emphasizes that he's a child of Themis. That's correct. Which I think is significant. Absolutely. Yep. So did we cover Hesiod in previous episodes? Here's a plug. Yes, we did. Uh, the- Two. Theogony and the Ecstasy, yeah, right? Working for a Living. That's right. Which was on Works and Days, and then Theogony and the Ecstasy. Right. So our listeners are going to want to go check those out if you yeah. haven't listened to those already. Enough, enough. All right. Okay. <laughs> how, many years All right. Have, how many years have transpired, though, between the Hesiodic source material and the Escalian reworking? At least a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. And, and so this, it's, he's far distant from Hesiod, but that's plenty of time for playwrights like Hesiod and Homer to be fully uh, kind of embedded as, right. as almost sacred literature for the Greeks. Absolutely. Yep. What other kinds of additions or alterations did Aeschylus make? So, um, you know, he is um, the, uh, his, the physical punishment of Prometheus, you know, the chaining, the impaling, uh, the the sending of the bird to peck at his liver or his, his heart, all, all that is much more elaborate in Aeschylus. Um, the the detail that Heracles is fated to you know to be born later, and one of his deeds will become to kill the eagle mm-hmm. and be instrumental in freeing Prometheus. Um, and then this the particular kind of cruelty and injustice of Zeus is is almost seems to be purely Aeschylean. And that seems to be the shocking part. Yes, right. right. And this is where interpreters say. Aeschylus doesn't have this view of Zeus in his other plays. Yes, right. Now he's the big baddie, right? He's the tyrant extraordinaire, and so they think something's off. Right. So, the, which makes me makes me even more think. Okay, uh, if we knew when this play was written, we could we could explain that much much better. Well, and if we had the other eighty three plus plays, <laughs> we'd have a much clearer idea. Right. Can you ima- imagine what it, what an output? So how how did he live to be about seventy? Yeah. And so, one a year, one a year, starting in infancy, <laughs> <Is that> right? 
<laughs> I mean, the, proli- the, the just how prolific. It's incredible. Yeah. But when you have a formula, right? Yeah. And then you have a, just an overpowering imagination. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. So th- he, had, he could just kind of, he had a beat on the drum box that he could play. And then he's just auto-tuning everything. It's just kind of just... I don't know. There's a genius there. Yeah, it's definitely. not just pure output. Right, exactly. Do you want to talk about the Hackett cover oh, bef- before we go to the I love talking about ads? the Hackett covers. You know this. Yes, right? I know. This one is especially interesting. It is. So, um, so uh, regular listeners will know that when we talk about Hackett in our, our ads... I will often wax eloquent about how I love the, the covers. They're very clever, and they will often use a contemporary picture. For example. Um, so, you know, the um, the picture of the landing at D-Day for the Iliad. The um, moon landing. The moon landing for the Odyssey. The picture of, of, of Elvis Presley being inducted into the army for the Bacchae, which is my favorite. Yeah. Um, this one is, uh, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Okay. Uh, maybe you have some ideas. Careful, don't bite the hand that sponsors you. No, of course not. Um, but the the uh, the picture on the front of of the Hackett edition of Prometheus Bound is this um, contemporary sculpture that sits in the middle of the Vatican uh, courtyard museum courtyard. Yes, right by Arnaldo Tomato. Uh, yes, exactly. It is Arnie Tomato. Is his name? Yes. <laughs> his name is Pomodoro, which is Italian for tomato. Yeah, right? Arnaldo Pomodoro. Right. The first time I saw it, I thought, "Is that the Death Star?" <laughs> It does look like the Death Star. A lot, right? doesn't it? Yeah. Or the AT&T symbol. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> right, yeah. Before the breakup. Right, right, right. But it, it's, so a, it's, a, it's a sphere. It's a massive kind of shiny sphere, but it's fragmented, so you can kind of see the interior, kind of the guts of it. Right. So It's, it's got cracks and in some kind of interior symmetry, mm-hmm. but exterior disaster. Right. And so and what it made me think of, of okay, so how am I going to use this to explain the play? Right. That it's kind of questioning... The, the the lordship and, mm. and justice of Zeus, it's almost like saying the whole world is threatening to fall apart. I right? see. And of course, uh, Prometheus also, he, his ace in the in the hole is that he knows the uh, the, the name of the woman that if Zeus uh, has uh, sleeps with her, right. uh, will produce a son greater than the father. Yes, and which so, turns out to be, it's a Thetis, right? And yes. it turns out to be she marries Peleus and it's Achilles. Achilles, right. But Zeus doesn't know that, right. so he's terrified. So that kind of that, that threat of the of the whole thing coming coming crashing down, maybe mm-hmm. that's what's suggested by this sculpture. I don't know. Well, another another point you could make for uh, Arnie Tomato, yeah, um, Arnaldo Pomodoro, sorry, is that um, the surface is highly reflective, right? Yes. So when you approach the the work of art, the object, you see yourself in its you know cracked exterior and it's it's a roughed up shape. Yes. And maybe that's supposed to cause some kind of inner reflection on your own disproportion have you ever had that experience i i, I i'm sure i have i, I couldn't um, okay but i'm have I'm, you seen the bean in chicago i have seen the bean right, right people go and it's kind of a similar object it is similarly disturbing object i would say right it, it kind of gives you a um a kind of weird funhouse mirror yes. kind of, of view of yourself but it's massive it is massive but i have to say that's kind of a shockingly unknowy like uh, interpretation of this. Well, you're misunderstanding. It's not that I think that is the right interpretation. But even that you would offer it is is it seems you, like you, you, would, uh, you would you would you would you underestimate me. I I do. I often do. But I I from I've known you many years. Yes. But I would think that all of them pleasant. You, you would be the first to kind of poo poo the notion of that. You know, you engage the work. You become part of the work I of didn't art. Say that. That's exactly what you said. <laughs> no, no, right? no. I'm poo pooing. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't you worry. I will poo poo. <laughs> Yeah, but being, I like the interpretation. Being yeah. able to imagine um, any number of erroneous and ridiculous interpretations yes. doesn't mean I'm committed to any of them. No, but you seemed very serious when you were when you were offering that. Okay, I, I was a little serious. I, all I'm saying is, is one, I think it's a very good interpretation, and two, it just seems very unlike you. That's hmm. all I'm saying. Speaking of things unlike me, yes, it's time for the ads. Do it. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Ratio Coffee, and especially that Mark Helwig, that guy. You like that guy? I do like that guy. I've never met him. I would, no. I hope to meet him someday. Well, we're going to go out there someday. Are we going to go out yeah, there? Yeah, we're going to tour the facilities. We're going to uh, record uh, an episode, something like that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. So we're talking about out in Portland, right? That's correct. Fantastic. That's well, where the entrepreneur lives. Right. And so this, this genius... Um, behind Racial Coffee Company, uh, they produce, they make these wonderful 
Um, they are high-end coffee machines mm-hmm. that just produce um, consistently remarkable coffee day after day. I got to tell you, if Prometheus yes. had had a ratio eight or a ratio six <laughs> yes. while he's chained to the rock, it would have changed everything. It would have. He'd be, he'd be, he'd be I'm good. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's right. right. No, just a minute, you know, when Hephaestus shows up and, and Kratos and Bia, no, just a minute, I'm blooming. I'm blooming, right, right. exactly right, yeah. And I think out of respect, they would they would hold back. Oh, I think so. Right. That's, a, that's a beautiful machine. That's now, right. the one flaw in my theory here yep. is that as the, um, as the eagle picks out his liver, mm-hmm. right, I mean, it might be a little bit, it's going to be a little macabre here, <laughs> might be a little bit hard to keep the coffee in. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But aside from that, that, that that's, a, work. that's a bold theory. So the, these machines, the Ratio 8, that's the machine that both you and I have mm-hmm. um, and its younger brother, the 6. Um, Which you also used extensively I did. I before loved, you graduated. I loved it. I still have it. I can't let go of it. You can't loan it to some poor wow. fellow who's, you know, just using one, an inferior squirty plastic Dak and Blecker kind I, of thing. I should do that. You I, mean, should. It, I mean, it's ridiculous that I would hang on to it as some yeah. sort of backup machine. If but you I, were humane and philanthropic. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. But um, they're both great machines. Um, uh, they're wonderful. I had a perfect cup of coffee this morning. Mm-hmm. I imagine you did too. I did. Yep. Several. It was it was phenomenal. Right. Um, but and the magic. I'm yes, sorry. Go ahead. But I want to say that uh, there's, so there's the eight, the six. There's right. something coming down the, the line. Yeah, right? the ratio four. Ratio four is not out yet. No, it's going to come in uh, hopefully early 2024. Yes. It is going to revolutionize the coffee industry. I have no doubt about this. Yes. I think I would say this even if, you know, Mark wasn't sponsoring this podcast. Right. Because it's going to bring high quality, high end coffee, kind of like similar to the pod system. Yeah. But much better quality and not as disposable. Right. And beautiful works of art. Right. Yeah. I, I can't wait for it. I, I think that um, our listeners will, will, will jump on this as well. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's more attainable. I mean, let's yeah. be honest. The, the aid is not a cheap machine, but why you would want to every day use a cheap coffee machine, that's beyond me. That's right. So, listeners, if you want to take advantage of, of our offer, go to ratiocoffee.com. Um, pick one of these machines, the the eight, the six. You want to, maybe you want to hang in there, wait for the four down yeah. the line. Um, uh, this month, uh, October, you can use this code A N C O F seven is our code, and that will get you fifteen percent off your entire order. Do yes. you want to know what the F stands for? What what is it? Fibonacci. Fibonacci. Of yeah, course, Fibonacci. It. The shower head. Of course, I should have known that. Of yeah. course, check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. These are the publishers of Prometheus Bound, the yes. translation by Deborah Roberts. Yep. Also, we have the Lombardo translations of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Ava's Metamorphoses. Jeff, is there anything not to like about Hackett? There really isn't. And it, and if you look at their catalog, if, they, if uh, the listener goes to hackettpublishing.com, you can see their extensive catalog. Yes, lots of, of offerings from the classical world, but um, you can find um, texts on Islam, uh, philosophy. Uh, chi- Sam- samurais? Samurais, yes. Eastern history, Eastern philosophy and religion. They've got it all. Um, and we we were just talking about how we love the you know the artwork. This mm-hmm. this volume of, of Prometheus Bound is very affordable. It is. Uh, it's an excellent translation. Yep. Um, by someone who, who who knows exactly what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't say enough about it. And as I was reading through the introduction of the book, she takes into account other translations, other scholarship. I was just very impressed with the humaneness, the responsibility. Uh, not an off word, I would say, in anything of, of what she's put together. Right. So and, far as I can tell. And it, it struck me as well as that uh, the, the both the translation and the introdu- introduction, you don't have to be a classical scholar to know this, right? It was, hits the sweet spot. It, it does hit the sweet spot. It's not going to, you know, buries you in, in footnotes and right. and arcane things. It's it's a, it really is a wonderful, pithy, right to the point kind of uh, introduction. And Professor Roberts has another translation of Aeschylus coming out in 2024. Oh, and what, which, which one is she doing? This is The Persians. Oh, yes. And we'll probably have to cover that at some point. Yep. But this was the play that Aeschylus wrote that is set in the court of uh, the Persian aristocracy. Right. Kind of their perspective on the Athenian victory. Yes, exactly. And it's the one tragedy that survives that is not borrowed from the, myth, the mytho- mythical canon. Yes. yes. Incredible. So yep. look forward to that. So, Jeff... Let's say the the listeners convinced now. All right, you guys, you yeah. you've been singing the praises of Hackett. I want to expand my classical library. What should I do? They should go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H A C K E T T publishing.com. Find the books you want, drop them into the little grocery basket and type in the code AN2023. And Jeff, will that get them? Look to them two wonderful things, 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Check it out.
Okay, Jeff, as we get back into it now, we mm-hmm. are ready to start, aren't we, with we the are. opening lines of the play itself. We are. And it's, uh, we've, we've gotten, I think we've gone too long in this episode without actually hearing some Greek. Yes. So, Dave, would you read some? Oh, mama, here's your drama. Let's do it. Let's read those opening lines. Please. All right. So, I'm going to read this. This is an iambic trimeter. And um, honestly, reading this kind of meter, I find more challenging than reading hexameter. There are no doubt other persons out there who can do it better. I must say that, but mm-hmm. here goes. All right. Kthanos menes telu ron hei komen pedon. Sku thenes hoi man abaton es ere mian. He fais de soi de hre melain epistolas. Hasoi pater efe te ton de pros petrais. Hupse lok me nois ton le orgon ok masai. Adaman tinon desmon and ardreik tois pedais. Very nicely done. Thank you. Yes, impressive. Thank yeah. you. It's it's a beautiful musical rhythmic language. It is. One thing that occurred to me as I was preparing for this episode is, you know how much I dislike musicals. Yes, I, I'm right? with I'm with you there. Are you really? Uh, yes, exactly. You got something to say? Say it. You know Gary Schmidt. Yes. One of our best episodes. Right. Right. Um, I don't remember what we called it, but. Uh, Gary doesn't like musicals either. Really? He does not. Did you learn this from the man himself or did you? Uh, I learned this from his daughter, one of his students. No, he doesn't like musicals. (laughs) Either sing it or say it. (laughs) Why do they have to be run together? (laughs) Right. But it occurred to me, tragedy is like a musical. It is like a musical. So why do I like it so much? Well, I... Am I I just a a horrible hypocrite? No, I I think uh, the the corollary, maybe this won't help, but the corollary I've, I've heard that... This explained is that it's actually more like opera than it is uh, music. This isn't like uh, Guys and Dolls. Okay. This is more like... Um, so uh, what's the difference? Pagliacci. The girth of the singers? <laughs> well, I think that it's, uh, you know, tragedy, it's about, um, it's about, it's about the song, right? It's in, it, so you can have, uh, it's not about the action on the okay. stage, right? So tragedy is about the song, you're saying. It's about, the, it's about the song more than it is about the, you know, the physical action that you're seeing on the stage. Okay. Yes. And, and, and so, tragedy is about the ideas. Yes, right. And so it, Whereas it, a musical... Well, it's it, it tends to... Well, it would depend upon the musical, but I think it tends to be um, more about the emotion, perhaps, you might say. It's, it's, it's maybe, it can be you're light, floundering, lighter. Michael. You're floundering. You're um, uh, I'm trying, floundering. I'm trying to come up with something. All right. But, um, I mean, do you have, got an opinion on this, about the, the, the opera comparison versus a musical? I don't know opera well enough. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm suspicious that the idea is highbrow versus lowbrow, hmm. and that doesn't seem to be like an adequate explanation. No. No, no, no. That I'd, seems overly simplistic. I'd, yeah, I do. Well, let, let's see where this takes us. May, maybe one of the listeners is an expert in these kinds of things mm-hmm. and can provide us some guidance. Yeah. In the meantime, yep. why don't we read uh, the? Why don't you read the translation by Professor Roberts of the Greek lines I just read? Sure, just a, a brief setup. And so when the play opens, we're on this the distant crag, and we have um, four characters on stage. We have abstractions, power, and force. Kratos, Kratos, and Bia. Bia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bia is one of Aeschylus's famous silent characters. Never speaks. Um, there with Hephaestus, the the god of the the forge, the smith god, mm-hmm. um, and then you also have Prometheus. There's been led, who's being led to his punishment. And Prometheus does not speak for quite a long time. No, he is he is silent as they chain him to the rock. Mm-hmm. And power, Kratos opens this up, and so he, he says, "We have come to a distant region of the earth, the Scythian wilderness, where no mortals live. Hephaestus, you are here to carry out the commands of Father Zeus." Against these rocks, high cliffs of fall harness this criminal with chains of adamant, bonds he cannot break. It was the flower of your own craft he stole, bright fire, the origin of every art stole and handed to mortals. For this wrong, he must pay the penalty the gods exact, so that he may learn to embrace the authority of Zeus and leave his human loving way. Nice. All right. You want to read uh, Hephaestus' lines? I would. I would just like to make one little comment on the speech of power. Yes. And that is, I like the way that Greek tragedy frames the plot for you so efficiently and suggestively. Mm -hmm. It's all here. There's no surprise. Right. Exactly. But it's so beautifully done. It it, it is beautifully done. And I like that it opens with a dialogue. Uh, You know, so many Greek tragedies open with um, one character kind of giving a a monologue kind mm-hmm. of setting up the whole play, which is fine and it works. But like the Agamemnon. Agamemnon. Or, or the night watchman is lying dogwise on the roof. Exactly. Or the Alcestis too. Um, Apollo comes down and sets the whole scene mm-hmm. in a monologue. But this is a, a, a back and forth between power and Hephaestus. Yeah. So I'll read Hephaestus. Yep. Power and force. You've carried out completely what Zeus decreed. 
Your part in this is done, but I can't bear to bind a god by force, one of my family, in this wintry chasm. And all the same, I am required to bear it. It's hard to set aside my father's words. He turns to speak to Prometheus. Child of Themis, who gives sound advice, your thoughts aim high. Against your will and mine, I'll pin you with bronze chains you can't undo on this crag far away from humankind, where you will neither see the forms of mortals nor hear their voices. Burnt by the sun's bright fire, your skin will lose its bloom. You will be glad when night in spangled clothing hides the daylight, and again when sun at dawn dispels the frost. Always the burden of each moment's pain will wear you down. Your rescuer is not yet born. This is what your human loving ways have won. You are a god, and still you did not cower before the anger of the gods, but granted mortals honors to which they have no right. For that, you'll keep watch on this joyless rock, upright, unsleeping, never bending a knee. You'll cry out often. In sorrow, pain, regret, it will do no good. Zeus is not to be won over. He is harsh, as all those new to power are harsh. Hmm. So Hephaestus, this is really fascinating. So Hephaestus is a is a son of Zeus. An Olympian. An Olympian. Um, but he seems to take no joy in carrying out this order of his father, mm-hmm. right? And so he's he's waffling a bit, right? He he sees the uh, the injustice in this. I mean, and on the one hand, he says that you know, yeah, you gave mortals what they don't deserve. You did you did wrong, and that comes with consequences. Um, but he says, you know, I can't I can't bear to do this. You know, um, he's one of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an innately cruel thing to do. Yeah. And so we have Hephaestus, who was the god who was the most mocked and picked on by the rest of them. He is the bumbling fool in uh, the Odyssey. I think it's the end of book one where he's serving the gods at uh, table and they make horrible fun of his lameness. Right. You know, they're cruel beyond measure. Yes. Yep. So maybe he, he's, uh, uh, he, reckon, he sees an underdog. When, uh, he knows an underdog when he sees one, right? right? So maybe there's some sympathy there. Could be. Um, it also, it, you know, speaking of of like the Athenian context, um, of course, you know, Hephaestus is a god who plays a role, uh, in a, a very important role in the in the, the pantheon for the Athenians. Right. right? You have that um, that that the, the temple uh, right off the Agora. The Hephaestion. Um, he has a particular connection to Athena. Um, he is a god of civilization, and so he's very he's a he's a god that's very close to kind of the the ethos of of the of the inventive, creative Athenian. So, I mean, could Aeschylus be trying to say something by presenting Hephaestus in this way to a original audience of Athenians? Absolutely. And as Professor Roberts, once again, for the win, mentions in her introduction, there was a joint altar to Prometheus and Hephaestus in the Athenian precinct. Oh, well, there you go. So they worshipped them together in yeah. some sense. So there's the union, the joining. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that um, that last line of Hephaestus, he is harsh as all those uh, new to power are harsh. And so we, I think we should contextualize. There's the there's the potential political angle. Well, I, no, I think not. I think contextualize it in terms of like in the myth, when is this story happening? So this is soon after the victory of the Olympians over the Titans, mm-hmm. right? And so. Um, Maybe it would lend Zeus some sympathy to think, okay, he's got to he's got to nail things down and nail things down quick if he wants right. to maintain power. And so maybe he is overreaching, uh, but for the purpose of making sure that his his rule is going to last where his predecessors did not. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's not an excuse, but maybe it explains. Oh, it's explanatory. Yeah. Do you remember uh, your first job? I do. Yes. yes. What, what was that like? It was horrible. I was <laughs> I, I was on my hands and knees uh, weeding. Uh, a, a massive uh, garden in a huge nursery with a little trowel. Were there any, um, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? Cream, cream cones? What's oh, that it? was my second job. What, what are yeah, those again? The, the cream the, the cream curls. Cream curls. Yes. Okay, let me rephrase this. <laughs> right. Do you remember your first <laughs> academic job? Uh, uh, I do. Okay. Yes. So when I got, not my first, but my, I guess it would be my third academic job when mm-hmm. I came to, uh, this part of the country and worked at uh, Calvin University, Calvin College at the time. Mm-hmm. I asked uh, an individual who had been my mentor and um, friend, any advice on you know teaching this particular group of students? And he gave me some good advice that I won't repeat. But one thing he said was, you don't have to always be as challenging and rigorous as possible in order to maintain authority. Words to that effect. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know if he said that because he knew me or if the, what was going on, but it's reminiscent of what we read here, right? Uh, with Zeus, where Hephaestus says, Zeus is not to be won over. He is harsh, as all those new to power are harsh. Yeah. So there's a tendency to go into the classroom and 
you've got to demonstrate I'm in charge. And if there's any kind of insecurity bundled into that, you have to make a point of it sometimes. Right, right, right. Yeah. So okay. getting past that, I think, is a great step in um, maturing as a teacher. Sure. I don't think Zeus wants to teach Latin, but it strikes me as analogous. Yeah. I received similar advice along the lines of like, um, be, be harsh early. Because you can always kind of back off from there, but if, if you That's start the counterpoint, if you start soft, you've lost them. You've lost them. Yeah, yeah. So you got to balance those things. Yep. And Zeus apparently is not balancing. He's not balancing yet. Right. Maybe, maybe it's early on. Okay. So where does it go from here? Well, I I love this detail um, that Power throws in is that he says he's when he's talking to Hephaestus, he says, "Listen, this guy stole your gig, right? He stole fire. That's you. That's your thing. And right. Working at the forge." And and it's almost as if power is the same. Power recognized that Hephaestus is is he's wavering. Right. He says, "But listen, this guy insulted you as much as anybody. He he stole fire, and so he's kind of taking that out of your own hands." Um, and power doesn't seem to really understand why Hephaestus wouldn't be be um, angry about right. that. I just I just think that's really an interesting I agree. twist. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a, is there a kind of an Escalian shift going on here in terms of uh, Prometheus's motivation when we compare it to Hesiod? Oh, that 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 persona of uh, or that question over the motive of Prometheus, I think, is really quite interesting, right? And so um, it, there are readers and, and and authors who, much later than Aeschylus, will make um, make a lot of hay over it. Prometheus is is the rare. He's a kind of savior figure for yeah. the Greeks. He's kind of a, a rare deity that looks out for humanity for humanity's sake. Mm -hmm. And I think, I guess, to some degree, that's true. Uh, but my sense of, of the Prometheus story is, why does he steal fire and give it to mortals? It's not really because he loves mortals. Right. It's because he wants to get back at Zeus. It's a revenge move. It's a revenge move. But the way that Aeschylus frames it is that, you know, just in these 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 two dialogues, it's, you know, uh, you're going to pay for your human loving ways. Right. He becomes a very different kind of character. This is one of the first plays that I read as an undergrad. It was in uh, Mark Williams' class, classical right? mythology. Oh, read yeah. Prometheus Bound. I think it was the the Lattimore translation. I think, I, yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, you remember the cover probably yeah. even. Yeah. And I think one of the first uh, papers that I wrote was comparing Prometheus, you know, is Prometheus a legitimate Christ figure? Yeah. And I don't remember what I concluded, but I think I focused on the dissimilarities. I hope the paper doesn't survive anywhere because <laughs> it was pretty poor. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, nothing is discovered and perfected at the same time, as Cicero right. says. So. Right, right, right. I think, I think, broadly speaking, it's an interesting comparison to yes. make. Just because a, a god acting in that way in the Greek pantheon is so rare. Yes, and he is, in effect, crucified. Yes. Prometheus is, in effect, crucified. Right. And then, you know, and then there's even this moment early on where there's uh, where power is kind of mocking Prometheus mm -hmm. and kind of has a, a kind of you know, you know physician heal thyself moment, which yep. well, I think also kind of draws out the parallel. Sure, right, sure. So he power says to Prometheus, he says, "Here now, display your arrogance and steal God's privileges for creatures of a day. How can mortals lessen this suffering? The gods call you Prometheus, forethinker, false name." You lack the forethought you require to twist your way out of this work of art. Yes. So, so if you are who you say you are, how could you get stuck like this? That's right. Yeah. Interesting side note, the name Prometheus has always been taken as etymologically derived from forethought. Yes. Right? And his brother Epimetheus. Afterthought. Afterthought. Right. How's that for a name? <laughs> but as crazy? I was doing a little bit of research, <laughs> apparently there's some suggestion it might uh, have a Sanskrit root. That has to do with fire, actually. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah, so yeah. maybe somewhere down the road, if we want to dig a little deeper into, um, you know, who is the author of this play, we can deal with some of these extraneous issues. Yeah. Oh, that's really, I had never heard that before. Mm -hmm. That's really quite interesting. So uh, now the daughters of Ocean. Yes. They pop up. They pop up. So These are the Oceanids, right? Right. And so once uh, Kratos, Bia, and Hephaestus leave the stage, uh, the daughters of Ocean, which are the chorus in this play, show up. And they are ready to do what choruses do, weep and wail and wring their hands and, and cast a, a doubt on everything. And they're not to be taken, as I understand, uh, from uh, Oliver Taplin, Stagecraft of Aeschylus, mm -hmm. of Aeschylus and others. The chorus is not to be taken as representing the everyman perspective. It's, it's not. Not. Okay. All right. Not. We shouldn't fall into that easy fallacy that, okay, now you're going to get what the audience thinks as voiced by the chorus. It's more sophisticated than that. Okay, all right. But what do they say? So they say to um, Prometheus, what God is so hard-hearted that he finds delight in this? Who wouldn't share your sorrow except for Zeus? 
In constant anger and with unbending mind, he subjugates heaven's children. He will not stop until he satiates his heart for someone win, uh, for someone wins his kingdom hard to win by violence or by art. Hmm. I mean, I, I find those those words extraordinary uh, in that it is a it's a critique of Zeus. Yes, um, and you know, usually the 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 characters within a chorus are you know characters who are on the margins that don't you know they don't possess a lot of power here. No, and so these are divinities, but they're they're low on the food chain. Definitely, and they are willing to kind of to give their sympathies to someone who is the arch enemy of the guy who's now in charge. That's right. Prometheus has spoken prior to this, right? And we didn't quote that part, but he gives a kind of a stoic, uh, that'd be anachronistic, but yes. a kind of a stoic, well, I'm just here to endure, so right. that's what I'll do. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Right. And if his name doesn't mean forethinker, of course, he can he, he can see how this is all going to end as well. Which he does. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but that the, those kinds of characters, characters kind of drive me crazy, the ones that you know, know the future. It kind of gets you into kind of that time travel paradox. Is you know what does Prometheus have free will in this? I it, see. So is it you really, find those things vexing? Well, is it really suffering if he can already see if he already knows it's going to end, it, or it's at least a different kind of suffering? Right. He knows it's not going to be eternal. Uh, I don't it's know. It's the kind of suffering you get when watching Groundhog Day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So I don't know if those are questions you're not, one of those que- you know, questions you're not supposed to ask. I, I don't know. But um, yeah. Um, well, Jeff, I think we're up against it. Are we really? Yeah. Does this seem like a good place to break it off? Yeah, I think we can stop here. Okay. We, we just scratch the surface in terms of the play itself. I'm, yep. I look forward to the next one. We have uh, one more episode, perhaps even two. I guess we'll see where it takes us. We'll see where it takes us, yeah. But before we, uh, before we get out of here, right, it was the National Liver Society is uh, holding a meeting here or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. I don't know why they're meeting this late. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> right, but but uh, they have to give up the vomitorium, yes. ironically. Yeah, so. they are a, a cranky, demanding bunch. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Dave. Before we go, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method LLPSI. What you got going on? Sure. So uh, the Moss Method for Greek is a way to take you from. Uh, Neophyte to Erudite. That's right. Thank you, Jeff. It's a program I have developed using the textbook of Charles Melville Moss. It's not really a textbook. It's a Greek reader. And as he says in the introduction, Greek should not be about the thumbs constantly flipping through the lexicon. Yes. It should be about the brain. You know, you should try to figure out what the words mean in context. Use a little imagination. Use some memory. Yeah. And so the book uh, is brilliantly put together. I've divided up its 163 readings into four modules. Each module is 40 lessons. And I have taken each reading and given a whiteboard video presentation of all the forms, all the content. The great thing is you're learning the grammar, but you're not just memorizing paradigms. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but you're learning how to actually read Greek and the stories are fascinating. Fantastic. So you sign up for this, go to mossmethod.com, check out some of my free offerings. We're almost up to 2,000 videos on my YouTube channel. Wow. 1,995 as we speak. Watch the free offerings, uh, Church Fathers, uh, the Scriptures, we've got some Plato, no Aeschylus, got some Sophocles. Maybe I should put some Aeschylus up there. If you like what you see, you want to study Greek with me, sign up for the course. Can you tell them about the Moffis Hours? That's my favorite part. That you so love? I believe you ha- you host these uh, Friday, right? That's is correct. It? And this is where uh, people, they zoom in. And, That's right. And uh, you, you can meet people from all over the world. Yes, this, this last um, little tutorial session that we had, uh, folks from... Switzerland, uh, folks from North Carolina, folks from New York, uh, India, several individuals from India, and wow. California. That's fantastic. And we're all reading Greek together. That's great. So they have direct access to you. That's it's, right. It's not just the videos. No but flunky. It, it's, the, it's, the, it's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now what about um, if, if people want to learn some Latin? Right. So latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI, Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. I've got unit one done, the first nine chapters. So I'm teaching four students, live students. I mean, they were live at the time, but you get the point. <laughs> right. And uh, you can watch, learn along with the book, watch their mistakes, watch their successes. We have a good time. I explain to you how to read Latin, how to speak Latin, how to write Latin. And as with the Greek course, there may be better courses out there, but I am really convinced there isn't a better value. That is the combination of my expertise and experience, Mm -hmm. the thoroughness of the product I put out at the price point. I think it's unbeatable. And so where would they go to find this? Latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. Fantastic. 
Jeff, we got some people to thank. We do. As always, Mishka, our great engineer who, who uh, record turnaround times for getting these things out, and it always sounds fantastic. And how about these guys, um, Scott and Ken? Yes. Uh, so the great music that you hear throughout. That's right. Screaming guitar. I love that stuff. That's that's fantastic. So We're uh, very appreciative to them for their generosity in sharing their music with us. Yes. So Dave, if people want a shout out, if they got an idea, they got a question, they got something to, uh, uh, to add, mm-hmm. what, what should well, they do? Well, they should contact you, Jeff, at adnauseum.com. Don't forget that there is a V in ad nauseum. Yep. Or they can contact me. Uh, Dave at ad nauseum.com. Also, don't forget that V there. You can pick up an ad nauseum themed t-shirt. Yes. Uh, these are nice black and orange t-shirts with Hercules fighting the Nemean lion or holding up the um, the world. And there's this nice Erasmian tag. Uh, yes, uh, quai nokent dokent. That's right. As that which uh, harms teaches. That's right. What doesn't kill you? Makes you stronger. All right. And I have to, should add, great fall colors. Yes. This would be the perfect time of year to get one of those shirts. Maybe take them on your hayride. There we go. <laughs> right. And so, Dave, next week we're going to, it's part two of, it uh, is. of PB. That's right. Yep. And uh, you're going to cue me up for this here, but but don't give too much away because oh, I, I got a joke involved. Okay, a great. poor one. but you, Dave, you have the gustatory parting shot. Yeah? yeah, so this is from the famous English philosopher. Oh, really? Yeah, John Michael Osborne. Oh, I haven't heard of this guy. You don't know John Michael Osborne? No, 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 no. It's, a, it's, a, it's from his I... biography, I Am Ozzy. Oh, oh, that, that John Michael. <laughs> Ozzy. Yeah. yeah, there you go. All right. I liked this. This, this stuck out to me. So Ozzy Osborne says, killing a pig... For a good old fry-up is one thing, but there's no excuse for being cruel, even if you're a bored teenage kid. Oh, there, there's some wisdom there, some huh? Wisdom. Nice, Ozzy. Right. I, I love the term of fry-up, too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.